Stand Up with Pete Dominic. With Pete Dominic. On Indy, Sirius XM 104. All right. Hour two begins now, and the issue is fracking, natural gas, climate change, methane, and more. Our next guest wrote an op-ed for the New York Times this week titled Gangplank to a Warm Future, which deals, of course, with climate change. He is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Cornell University, where uh, one of our interns goes, actually, Drew Endick, and president of Physicians, Scientists, and Engineers for Healthy Energy, a nonprofit group. He's also an expert on fracking, uh, what with the fact that he actually helped develop the technology. He is a longtime oil and gas engineer who actually helped develop the specific technology used in hydrofracking, in uh, shale fracking techniques uh, for the Energy Department. And uh, he joins us now. Professor, welcome back to the discussion. Thanks so much for being here today. Good to be back, Pete. Thank you. I want to first say, I told my producer, you know, we really got to get Professor Ingrafia back on the show. And then the next day, your op-ed appeared in the New York Times. So I, I I was interested even before that, sir. Uh, we had a mental connection there. There we go. Um, now, we had a long and great conversation uh, in what was my old show in a different time slot. So I want to rehash a little bit. And I want to talk about your op-ed. But basically, um, l- let's give you a little credibility uh, or a lot, which you do have. Um, you really are a, a, an expert on fracking techniques. You helped develop them. You're a, a gas and oil engineer. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, Professor. Sure. Uh, way back in the 1970s, I was one of the uh, young Americans who saw the problem with energy resources because we were, again, in an energy crisis. Went to graduate school, got a Ph.D. in rock mechanics and began to specialize in a sub-area of rock mechanics called hydraulic fracturing. And uh, back in the early 80s, I uh, worked for about a year at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory on a DOE project called Eastern Devonian Shales. This is 1984. (laughs) And little did we know then that we were actually doing some of the very basic work leading to an understanding of how we could uh, use hydraulic fracturing uh, to stimulate the production of gas from shales that are already fractured. That was the problem. Uh, So over a period of four or five years, I worked with some really good scientists and engineers Uh, at Lawrence Livermore, and we wrote a bunch of papers, and that was part of what President Obama referred to as public support of the development of hydraulic fracturing to stimulate gas and oil from shale. He was referring to something, some work that you'd done that long ago? Well, he wasn't referring to me specifically, but he was referring to the fact that our taxpayers' dollars went to the Department of Energy, and the Department of Energy spent those dollars helping the oil and gas industry develop a capability which they're now trying to exploit. Well, that's called picking winners, by the way, that's just to be clear. called picking winners, yes. Isn't that amazing? Uh, well, uh, so there is, you know, we, hydraulic fracturing was was a term that you were, you know, talking, uh, using in the 80s, a, a, a technology that back then – I think one thing that's really misunderstood, however, apparently is 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 the big change or the development or something that's that's different about the hydraulic fracturing that is used now to get natural gas out of the uh, out of the ground. Is that right? Is there is there a difference in 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 the technology now? Most certainly. Yeah. So even in the even in the eighties, hydraulic fracturing was an old technology. It first began to be used commercially in the late nineteen forties. Uh, in in the nineteen eighties, we called an an MHD, a massive hydraulic fracture job, 
something that consumed over 100,000 gallons of frac fluid and was used to fracture rock that wasn't already fractured. What's different about fracking today, um, what sets it apart completely from what has traditionally or what they call conventionally been done, uh, is the uh, one to two order magnitude increase in the volume of fracturing fluid that's necessary, uh, the pressures that are necessary, uh, and the heavy equipment that's necessary to get five to ten million gallons, not a hundred thousand gallons, not half a million gallons, but five to ten million gallons of frac fluid down a single well uh, in a reasonable amount of a reasonable amount of time. So we're talking very large volumes of fracking fluid, which means large volumes of water and large volumes of fracking chemicals and large quantities of sand um, for each well, which then means we have a much larger waste disposal problem and we have a much larger footprint on the surface of heavy industrial equipment that is noisy, uh, it creates dust, it creates pollution, and uh, it's an industrial complex that the industry wants us to live within. Uh, there is a lot that you just said there. Let's focus quickly on uh, on water. Sure. One of the big problems with this process that I don't think there can be any controversy about, there just is and there isn't uh, a, a, an amount of water being used. And so, you know, at any at any one well, we know uh, how much water is being used. Perhaps I don't know if the industry is completely transparent and honest about the amount of water that's being used. But uh, the resources, where they get this water from, how they transport, uh, how much they need and use, let's just focus on the the water ingredient uh, that is used in this process, Professor. Uh, Tell me about that part of it. Sure. As I just mentioned, a typical shale gas or shale oil well uh, requires 5 to 10 million gallons of fracking fluid, which is 98, 99% water. Uh, that I don't know how much 10 million gallons of water is. <laughs> uh, I mean, I can't even, I can't fathom that, you know, um, is that a lake? Is it a small pond? It's a, uh, it's a small pond. Uh, think, think of a, a, a few acre pond 10 feet deep. A ski resort often will place itself near or create a pond uh, to use to make snow. Does a fracking well need a natural uh, source of water? Do they ship the water in? Where do they get the water from? It depends upon which area of the country we're in. Um, There are distinct differences, for example, between fracking for shale gas in Texas and in the northeastern Pennsylvania. In northeastern Pennsylvania, they can get permission from the Susquehanna River Basin Commission to pull trucks up to the Susquehanna River and suck water out of the river and then transport it by truck uh, either directly to a well or to an impoundment, a freshwater impoundment, a large lake that they've artificially created, uh, and then they can pipe it to various wells, which means creating surface pipelines for water distribution, which means cutting down trees in the Northeast. In Texas, it's a little bit tougher because, as you know, Texas has been in a prolonged drought, and there's tremendous competition uh, between agriculture and energy development in Texas for a very precious commodity, which in most cases has to be drawn from deep underground aquifers, which can be depleted during times of uh, intense drought. So, yeah, there's a lot of water involved. And as I said, what goes down, some of it comes back up, not all of it. And now we have not water 
that went down, but water that went down with chemicals that were added to the water uh, to make the fracking work well. And whatever that fluid picked up while it was down underground, which has been stored down there for about 300 to 400 million years, safely away from us, and now it's back in our environment and has to be handled with care. Uh, and what is that called? Wastewater? What do they call that in the industry? It's called flowback. Flowback. And what flowback. is done with with that? Where does that get to go? Well, there are have to go. currently five possibilities, four of which are legal. Um, <laughs> one, one is uh, what was traditionally done with uh, waste fluids from oil and gas development, and that's to pump it back down underground. Uh, in what are called uh, waste injection wells. These are disused oil and gas wells or purpose-built wells for underground storage of unwanted material. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of those wells, mostly west of the Mississippi. Uh, there are very few of them in the Northeast. That's been the traditional way of disposing of this uh, fluid. And as you've heard recently, sometimes injection of this waste fluid into injection wells causes human-induced seismicity, small earthquakes. We can get to that later, perhaps. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, the other four <laughs> possibilities are you can, um, and this is an unfortunate possibility, take it to a sewage treatment plant that was designed to treat sewage. And you can pay a um, utility or a community money to have them take your waste through their sewage treatment plant, which, of course, then dumps it into a river where sewage treatment plants dispose of their treated waste. But in this case, a sewage treatment plant can't treat non-sewage. Flowback is not sewage. It's not full of organics. It's full of minerals and um, the wrong kind of organics, not the stuff we flush down our toilet. Right. It's been underground. Right. And so it's been noticed uh, relatively recently that not a, that's not a really good thing to do. Although it has been done in some places, it's still being done. That's number two. Uh, number three is that you can take it to a purpose-built industrial waste treatment plant, of which we have many thousands in the U.S. designed to treat waste from industry. Uh, in this case, you'd have to have an industrial waste treatment plant that was designed specifically to handle the chemistry of flowback. We don't have very many of those in the U.S., we have many industrial waste treatment plants to handle things that come out of other industries, but not many that handle what comes out of the oil and gas industry. The fourth and the best technique is to reuse the flowback, recycle it, and reuse it over and over again until you can't. For more fracking. For more fracking. Right. Uh, there's that, no other use for it. There's no other use for it right. uh, unless you can spend a lot of money to treat it back to drinkable water. Uh, you don't have to do that if you're going to reuse it. You just have to treat it somehow through various chemical and physical processes that cost money to a point where you can reuse it again in the next frack job. That's a good thing to do because it reduces the amount of fresh water that you need to start, and it reduces the amount of waste you eventually get at the end. What is the fifth and illegal way that the uh, flowback is disposed of? You wait till a dark, rainy night, and you run a truck through the back roads and open up the valve. How often does that happen, and why would any company take that risk? It doesn't happen very often. It has happened. Um, why would companies take that risk? Because there's money in it. Uh, there's a notorious case that was just uh, 
uh, brought the trial in conclusion in Ohio, where a uh, company that had been contracted by an operator to dispose of waste poured it down a sewer. Mm. Mm. There have been other cases. Now, what happened there? Did anybody go to jail? Was there a fine? Do you know? Uh, there were fines. There's jail sentences, and the company's out of business. Well, that's so, good. Yeah, there's justice. The policing needs to be done. <laughs> right. Uh, justice is nice from time yeah. to time. Um, we're talking to Anthony Engravia, uh, Professor Anthony Engravia of Cornell University. He's a longtime oil and gas engineer. He helped develop shale fracking techniques for the energy department. Uh, and, uh, and like I said, is now uh, the president of Physicians, Scientists, and Engineers for Healthy Energy, which is a nonprofit group. Let's talk about methane. Uh, you write a lot about methane in your uh, op-ed this, uh, was it Monday, in the New York Times that everybody should read. Um, where does methane come in when in this process of hydrofracking to get natural gas out of the ground? Well, the whole idea is to get natural gas out of the ground, mm-hmm. and natural gas is predominantly methane. Okay. Uh, the chemical symbol, carbon and four hydrogen, CH4. 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 I remember that. Yeah, good. I, I don't. <laughs> I actually don't. I just want to try to impress a Cornell professor. I really I don't. I bet your intern who's at Cornell does. Uh, he's not, uh, did you know that drew CH4? No, he says, no, he does not. <laughs> CH4 is, CH4 meth- is methane, methane, natural gas. When it's delivered to your home mm-hmm. is almost pure methane. Uh, so that's the whole idea. Get methane to burn. Okay. And when you burn it, it's a hydrocarbon. And as you know, anytime you burn oil or, or coal or methane, you get carbon dioxide. But, oh. but. Uh, you also uh, have a problem with developing, um, storing, processing, and transporting methane, natural gas, to an end user. And that is that some of it leaks, leaks out of the system, leaks out of pipelines, leaks out of compressors, leaks out of joints, uh, leaks out of wells. Uh, it leaks from the flow back during the hydraulic fracturing process. Uh, it's purposely vented for pressure control and compressor stations and the pipelines. Uh, and while it's being compressed into liquefied natural gas for export, and the problem with leaking methane is that it doesn't get burned. It's not transformed into carbon dioxide and water. It remains methane, and if it gets into the atmosphere, it's a greenhouse gas, according to the... Uh, uh, the highest court of the land, the U.S. Supreme Court, declared that methane is a greenhouse gas. And unfortunately, it's a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. That is a big, big – that's the issue here, that methane that is, is more potent than than CO2, than carbon dioxide in terms of when it gets in the atmosphere. And, and often we hear – uh, if you really study climate change uh, and you really understand it, you, you know that uh, eating animals is 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 a bad thing because animal production produces a lot of methane. Cow farts, everybody. Methane's bad, uh, and uh, and and not only when animals produce it naturally for the for the atmosphere, but when uh, or you could argue unnaturally because there are a lot of animals that probably shouldn't be, but uh, but in this case with natural gas production, it leaks. And so when methane gets into the atmosphere, it, you're saying it's it's worse than carbon dioxide. You're not saying that. Um, it uh, just, no, the science says that. The science says that. Um, um, the International Panel on uh, Climate Change, the IPCC, which consists of the best climate scientists from around the world, uh, has declared that over a 20-year measurement period, uh, methane is at least 
72 times more powerful as a warming agent in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. However, do we have any accurate measurements? We're talking about how bad methane is, but do we have any measurements of how much methane leaks out, is released during this process of hydrofracking? Do we know? Do we have any accurate measurements? No, we do not. That's also the key issue. It was mentioned by President Obama in his so-called climate speech a few weeks ago, and I brought it up in my op-ed in the New York Times this week. Right. Uh, here we are setting policy, all the above, drill, baby, drill, get as much shale gas as you can out without knowing scientifically with any degree of certainty how much that is affecting negatively climate change. We've never made the measurements. They're ju- they just started to be made in the last two years, and we're years away from knowing reasonably, reasonably statistically, Uh, how much methane is actually getting into the atmosphere from oil and gas production without ever being burned. Right. And that is really a a big thrust of your piece about what we don't know, what we don't know. And so so potentially, um, perhaps we'll find out that it's not nearly as much. It's it's not uh, so much that it's really, really uh, a huge problem. I mean, I mean, is there any way that you can see? Um, that uh, that uh, that there would be a a, a measurement that is uh, minimal enough that it it shouldn't be as as much of a concern. I mean, any any leakage is bad, but uh, if we have an accurate measurement that we think is doable, is that it, can you see a way that uh, moving forward that this part of uh, of fracking is not the biggest concern? Uh, yes and no. For example, if it turns out that uh, the measurements that are being made now. Uh, by government agencies and academics um, turn out that, uh, say, only 3 or 4% uh, of the methane that's being produced is actually getting into the atmosphere unburned. Um, that's marginal, marginal in the sense that it really doesn't give you much advantage over, say, continuing to burn coal to produce electricity. It gives you no advantage uh, versus renewables, because renewables don't produce methane or carbon right. dioxide. So it depends. If you want to continue on the fossil fuel trail, that's the president's policy, continue to increase the development and use of fossil fuels, then the lower the leak rate, the better. But following that trail inevitably takes us to the end of the gangplank from climate change point of view. We should not be increasing the development and use of fossil fuels we should have started decades ago to decrease their use. And the only ways that I know of to decrease their use are efficiency, conservation, and substitution of green renewable energy. And no one is saying, and I'm not saying, that that can be done overnight. I'm saying, and many other people are saying, it should have been started at a much higher rate decades ago. But the longer we wait to substantially reduce the use of fossil fuels, the harder it's going to be in our kids and grandkids with climate change. I think that one of the big issues, and we're talking to Professor Anthony Ingrafia, who really is one of the foremost authorities on this issue, uh, specifically, of course, uh, when it comes to fracking, but of all these issues, um, the, 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 I think the temptation um, that is there is that we have a lot of natural gas. No one doubts that we have a tremendous amount of natural gas. And when we talk to foreign policy experts, many of, you know, when, when asked to say, how do you, you know, uh, create more security in America from the threat of, you know, Islamist militants and so on, they'll actually give you an answer that has to do with energy. Say, get off oil, uh, get off the, the oil that we buy from many of these countries. We have to concern ourselves with that part of the world as much and so on. Smoke and, mirrors. Okay. 
Smoke and mirrors. That's smoke and mirrors, but it's not smoke and mirrors that we have a lot of natural gas. And it's not smoke and mirrors that if you're in the natural gas or or fossil fuel industry, you look at that natural gas underneath the earth as cash, just cash, cash to be be pulled out of the ground. And now we have this new way to get it out of the ground that that, uh, we're making more cash than we're spending. And we want to keep that flow of of cash, if I stay with that metaphor, because it's not really a metaphor – uh, we want to keep that going. So we want to create an atmosphere where we can get as much cash left uh, in terms of oil or coal out of the ground. But while that, when that's gone, we got this new way to get it, and we've got a lot of it in there. we got to make sure we keep pulling that cash out of the ground. Is that not really what's going on here? Uh, in a sense, yes. Uh, that's the way capitalism works. you got product uh, in the warehouse, bring it out of the warehouse, bring it to market. Uh, the problem is that we're way back in the dark nether regions of the warehouse where all the snakes and spiders live, and we're using the last dregs. And I would argue with what your assertion that we have a lot of natural gas. Okay. Yeah, we consume. How dare you? I'm a comedian. I know exactly how much natural gas. <laughs> how, okay. So, 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 we, uh, we so consume, I'm. We, these are big numbers. We consume like 23 trillion cubic feet of natural gas every year in the United States. And okay. currently. Uh, at current prices and current technology, we have enough natural gas in the U.S. to last us somewhere be, somewhere around 15 years. We are the Saudi if Arabia of natural gas. I've heard that. If we do not export it. So five years ago, oh. when the natural gas, shale gas boom was booming, uh, the mantra was, we're going to become energy independent. Bring a soldier home, drill a gas well in your backyard. Now the mantra is, let's export it. Well, Wait because we can't have it both ways. Well, we always sell energy on the open market, don't we? Uh, we hadn't. We have not been selling natural gas on the open market. We're about to start that. Oh, I did not realize that. Yes, liquefied natural gas plants have been permitted, East Coast, West Coast, Gulf of Mexico, to take this enormous amount of natural gas that was supposed to make us energy independent for a hundred years, and we're going to sell it to the highest payer. And People in Europe and people in Asia are paying a lot more for methane, natural gas, than we are by a factor of four or five or six. So we're going to make natural gas, like oil, an internationally traded commodity. And as you said, what that means is really good things for the shareholders. Uh, Yes, but let me just point out that if you want energy independence and energy security, if every country on earth wants energy dependence, independence, and energy security, they should only use energy that they own. Right. Who owns the sun? Uh, I think we do. I'm pretty no, sure I read that America owns the sun. Every country Jesus? owns the sun. Who owns the wind? Uh, that would be us. Okay. Uh, who owns falling water? What is it? Falling water. Uh, rain? No. Republicans. Uh, the, the power of water to create electricity, hydropower. I mean, the, but, but the, uh, why? But the, that's... Nobody owns those things, and so, you know, it's kind of hard to control things you don't own. Well, the, is not the other thing about those those renewable sources uh, of energy, I mean, that we we can't make as much money off of them. We'll never make as much money off of those sun, wind, and falling water uh, as we will off of coal, natural gas, uh, and oil, and so on. I mean, you, well, yeah, you're not selling a product anymore. You're selling a service. Yeah. So well, you're selling photo. You're selling you, sunlight is zero. Yeah, but you're still selling panels and windmills. Oh, sure. But they're not that nearly as profitable as uh, because because of the source. I guess it's different, right? I mean, the, the equipment. 
Um, I'm, I'm, I know what I'm trying to say, and I'm confusing myself. Clearly, I see what you're saying. You're not selling the 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 product. You're selling the the car that uses it. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, let me go to Chris in Boston with uh, Professor Anthony Engravia. Go ahead, Chris. Hi, uh, Pete. Thanks for letting me. Uh, Absolutely. Go ahead. On the show. And Professor, uh, it's good to hear uh, another person on carbon dioxide. The only comment, or I'll say two comments. I think the one. Uh, that $23 trillion, um, uh, I think, MMBTU of gas consumption in the United States a year is about uh, what I want to say about LNG export uh, is that it, it's coming on very, very slowly. And fortunately, free market economics are making that a reality because these facilities are very, very expensive, about $5 billion each to increase export between 1 and 2 BCF a day. A lot of numbers I know, but it's just that's going pretty slow. The main comment I wanted to make is about carbon dioxide, and just while fossil fuel and natural gas are um, are still uh, natural gas is still a fossil fuel, it emits substantially less carbon dioxide than, for instance, the production of electricity, as does coal. So I know we don't want to become renewable overnight, but does I think that, but that's I think a myth. And, and let, let me and let me ask the professor: Does does natural gas? Let's make sure I'm get this right, Chris. Does natural gas emit less uh, pollution? Uh, than than oil and coal. Is that what you're saying, Chris? That's, well, that's, it's, this is accepted correct. fact. Now, I mean, this that's is carbon dioxide. Can argue it, but you know, the jury is out on how much methane is released through pipes. Right. That's coming back. And while we wait for it, there is an argument out there that from six billion tons of total United States anthropogenic carbon dioxide production, we've fallen to about five point five billion. That is a huge material reduction through which the attribution has largely been a rotation to natural gas. All right, so you've heard these points being made, I'm sure, a number of times. Go ahead, Professor. Uh, yeah, that last point has just been discredited literally yesterday by the third study I've seen in the last month, and that is that the reduction in carbon dioxide emissions in the U.S. was due to the increased use of natural gas for electricity production. False. The carbon dioxide reduction in the U.S. over the last few years has largely been due to increased efficiencies. The fact that our, we're getting better mileage from our cars, the fact that we have much more efficient uh, appliances and industrial processes, that is predominantly the reason why carbon dioxide has dropped. In mm. fact, the use of coal for electricity production increased in the last six months over natural gas. It's now, again, the largest producer of electricity in the country, uh, coal. And the reason for that... I want to make one last point on that. Then, in the face of that reality... Uh, the, the price, the kilowatt hour price that resulted in this rotation back to coal is less than half a penny. And if we paid for natural gas use, we would get back. And I've done this attribution by using EIA statistics on electricity production by unit of megawatt hour. And you actually do arrive at over 100 million tons of that 500 million in natural gas rotation. So it may be less. It may be less than the, uh, the, the savings from car efficiency and so forth, as you state. But there is nonetheless a very material reduction from its use. And I, I just don't want that to escape the more the less environmentally idealistic among the audience. Uh, professor. No, that's uh, I agree. That's fine. Great. Uh, if you're only concerned about producing electricity and you're only concerned about using fossil fuels to produce electricity, go ahead and use natural gas. But that's not my concern. My concern is climate change. Right. That's, that's, the, that's the elephant in the room. Well, uh, so we, and, and my concern is that we only use about a third of our natural gas for electricity production. The other two-thirds goes to, to, goes to things like home heating and industrial processes and feedstocks, for which we have ample substitutes. 
non-fossil fuel substitutes. So let me... So, again, it depends upon how you frame the question. If you're only concerned about using fossil fuels to produce electricity, go ahead and burn natural gas. But that's not the question. What about, what about emissions? You know, we started, his call started talking about emissions. And a lot of people say natural glass, gas, and I believe the president is one of them, is a cleaner burn. It, 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 it emits less pollution. Now, I think that might be true, but what I hear a lot is fine, it is. But the, but the process of getting the natural gas out of the ground, all of the trucks that have to go, all of the energy that is used to get it out of the ground, you have to take that into consideration. Just like I can't argue that my Chevy Volt is is a hundred percent clean when I stay in the battery because I'm still using dirty energy to get the electricity into to charge up my Chevy Volt from from coal, etc. Um, and so you have to take the net usage of energy in this case to get natural gas out. And and then I don't know what that is. I don't know what those figures are, Professor. But how does it then come out? Uh, in the end, cleaner than, say, coal or oil or anything else you want to put it up against? A good set of questions. There are actually two questions. Okay. The first one was, when you burn methane, natural gas, do you get less carbon dioxide than when you burn coal or oil? Yes. Absolutely. That's chemistry, basic chemistry. That's okay. true. Uh, compared to coal, about one-half the carbon dioxide. Okay. But you use the word pollution. Ah. Ah. Mm. So, yeah, burning coal, producing coal, produces a lot of other pollutants. There are tens of thousands of, of Americans who die every year because of the, quote, pollution from the production and use of coal. And millions of Chinese. Yeah. And there are far fewer that die from the production and use of natural gas. Right. But there are different pollutants. Uh, natural gas, because of the way it's produced, especially from shale formations with very intense localized regional development, uh, increases ozone pollution because of all the heavy diesel machinery necessary to get it out of the ground. Right. That's what I was right. getting so at. Now we have to take that into account. Right. Now, the second part of your question, which, le- which goes directly from the first part, is don't you have to do what's called a complete life cycle analysis, a holistic analysis, taking into account everything? Yes. Life cycle. That's, yeah, life cycle. Energy return on investment. How much energy do we have to put into a system in order to get a unit of energy out? You and I would agree if it takes more energy uh, to get a unit of energy out, uh, it takes more energy in to get energy out, it's yeah. not a good thing to be doing. Okay, so the energy return on investment for shale gas is very low compared to energy return on investment for non-shale gas and oil and coal. So it takes more energy to get natural gas, shale gas out of the ground than it would have taken to get shale, non-shale gas out of the ground. That's part of the life cycle. That's the economic life cycle. That's the energy life cycle. you got the sociological life cycle, and God knows we now have a political life cycle. Yep. Well, and then we go back to the beginning of the conversation, which is the other vital natural resource that is used here, which is not used nearly to, to the amount and another source of energy, which is water. And, and and that needs to be that certainly needs to be factored in. Chris, are you still there? Actually, I am. Yeah. Okay. So, I uh, anything else before I, I I let you go here? Good question. No, Chris. Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, no. I think it's just good to be practical. The last statement I would make is that you know we we're marching to renewables, and we have to be cognizant of the fact that it is so slow a march. And how slow a march? One number I, I, in 2012, California was less than one percent solar for 
I'm sticking to electricity because that's what I know. But you but, know, when but, we look at but uh, but let me interrupt you and only just just because for the sake of time, Chris, which is we could talk about the march and and when we're getting there. But to both of you, a lot of that has to do with government. The march could be faster if we would invest more in it. I mean that that's the point I'm saying. If we are if we are to get rid of the incentives and, and the credits and the subsidies for wind and solar, but continue them for oil, that's a political thing. Government, uh, it's a, it's a straw man argument to say government shouldn't pick winners. Government does pick winners, and they pick. We know what industries they pick. We know what industries they subsidize. We know what industries uh, fund the campaigns of our politicians. And I'm simply saying, if government if we agree that government does pick winners in industries, if they picked these renewables, Chris, back to you, would that march that you're talking about, would it not speed up? Uh, it, at the margin. But think of this. You know, these solar installations are taking – this is a positive thing. It takes a lot of acreage. I think it's land acquisition is the way I like to look at it is the big stumbling block. It's not the cost of the economics of wind power and, and sun. It is – it is a, it's a square foot thing in many ways that presents the most practical right. impediment to rapid adoption. Uh, all right. Well, th- I really appreciate the call, Chris. Uh, Professor, I'll give you the last word because that is also how you wrapped up your op-ed talking about these. But to, to, to a similar question, if government invested in uh, more research and 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 uh, and obviously, you know, spent more more on on credits and subsidies and and and. Would we not have? Would that march speed up? Would that not change? Uh, actually, I don't think it would change very much as long as we kept uh, on the on the same course. Uh, of course, there's certain powers that want to want government to withdraw from its indirect and direct support of renewables. If we were to just stay the course we're on and resist those forces and allow the free market to dictate what's going to happen, I think we're going to be fine. Really, how would the free uh, – okay, so how would the – People are going to notice – it's already happening. There's a revolution in this country that nobody's written about yet. Uh, you know, figure out go, – go calculate how many solar panels were installed on private homes last year. But that's a very small percentage of the total energy production in the U.S., but it's a very significant sociological act, and people start realizing that their utility bills have dropped tremendously. Yes. And they're going to see as we – gradually, as we're doing now, increase the production of renewable energy, which for which there is no fuel cost, that their cost of utilities is going to drop, or at least isn't going to rise as fast as utility costs in places where they're not using renewables. People are going to notice that. They're okay. going to vote with their pocketbooks. I don't understand why big corporations with big facilities, big buildings, in places where there's lots of sun aren't, co- happening. aren't all covered in solar panels. It's already happening. I mean, I, I'm getting them. I've been talking about getting them for a year. I had the lease going, and the lease fell through on their end of the solar company I was working with. Uh, and then I haven't, I just haven't followed up with it. Uh, and, and I'm not sure if I had the initial capital that I needed, but you can lease them too. Yeah. Which is a great idea and pay our almost next to nothing. Yeah. I trust that Wall Street, uh, you know, the great economic uh, capital engine, Wall Street is going to continue to gradually see that there is. Uh, a financial significant return on investment in renewables because inevitably the fossil fuels, we all know this, fossil fuels are going to run out. Therefore, as they're running out, their price is going to continue to increase. Right. You don't have that problem with renewables. Fuel cost is zero. So there's going to be 
a transition. And it's happening right now. It's just going to happen at a faster rate in which all that capital on Wall Street is going to be divvied up in a different way. A lot more of it is going to be going to renewable investments. And when the people see what that means to their pocketbook, and when the government sees what that means to what our military is screaming, literally, our military is screaming to Washington, hey, climate change is the single most important threat to American security. That's what they're saying. That's what the generals and admirals are saying. And they're saying we, we, the military, are transforming ourselves into a renewable base. Yeah, they're developing these technologies. They're doing it. Yep, yep. Yep. Uh, so you want to talk about security and independence? Listen to the military. Uh, do you have time for one more question? Or i got to let you go. Oh, go ahead. All right. Let's go to Keith in New York uh, who wanted to talk about regulations with uh, with the fracking. Go ahead, Keith. You're on with Professor Hi. Anthony Ingrafia. Go ahead. Hi, Hi there. I had, I had two questions. One about regulations. I heard Rick Unger ask about a year ago, and I thought it was a great question. Are the problems that people aren't following regulations or that there's opposition to regulation existing? Or is the issue that it's fundamentally impossible to do this kind of work without substantial damage? And I thought it was a great way of putting the question because, obviously, if there's no way of doing it, it's a very different issue than, you know, looking for where the problem is. Well, when you look at all the problems that the the professor has laid out with with fracking, it it does become an interesting question. Is there any way to do this without – because we didn't even get to earthquakes, professor – uh, without the methane uh, leakage, without the water usage, without the chemical uh, pollution underground, and uh, we've already seen the water lit lit on fire. Without the, I mean, is there any way? I think that's what you're asking, right, Keith? That you could put in re- uh, regulations that would be able to regulate uh, these companies to responsibly get natural gas out of the ground. Well, Keith asked three questions, and I'm going to answer your question, Pete, by answering his three. He said, "There we go." Is the problem? That there are no regulations in some cases? Yes. Is the problem that companies don't follow the regulations in some cases? Yes. Uh, and the third question, I think, was, is the problem that even if you had the world's best regulations and they were absolutely perfectly enforced, and if they were violated, the repercussions would be proportional to the offense, then would everything be fine? And the answer is still no. There you go, Keith. Uh, professor. Awesome as always. I can't. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. Um, and I'll we'll put this interview out for uh, as a public service. But if people want to learn more about your work and 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 hopefully have you on their programs, where's the best way to go? You're not on Twitter, I see. Uh, no, I'm not. Um, email or go directly to the website of our not for profit www.pseHealthyEnergy.org. Got it. Thank you so much for your time and for everything that you're doing for, uh, you know, where I come from in upstate New York. I know a lot of people really look to you um, and, and you've been uh, you've been heroic in this effort. And I appreciate you joining us so much. Thank you again for the opportunity, Pete. You got it. All right. We'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Stand up with Pete Dominic. For more Stand Up with Pete Dominic, go to SiriusXM.com slash indie.